Thanks, Kendall. Is this okay? We're on. Good. Good. Hey, morning. I'm just happy that there's people sitting here. <laughs> I get to talk to people. That's awesome. Um, again, my name is Josh. Uh, originally from Pigeon, Michigan, so I'm kind of back home. Uh, I have not been to Bayshore in I don't know 15 to 20 years. I'll share a little bit about that story. Uh, we are going to spend time in the story of Gideon. Uh, Judges 6 is where we are, so we're working on some tech stuff. Hey, we're up. Look at that. If you can see the TV, then you can just look at that for some of the scripture references. If you want to open up to Judges 6, we're going to walk through probably verses 1 through 16 or so uh, this morning. We'll see how far we get and uh, where God takes us uh, as we walk through that. Uh, but before we get there, just a, a couple more things about me and kind of where I come from and, and why I said yes to being here. Um, one thing uh, about saying I'm from Pigeon and I hear people cheer, I never get that anywhere I go. <laughs> people are like, Pigeon? Like, White Pigeon? No, not White Pigeon. Pigeon. Like, THE Pigeon, right? Um, so thanks for cheering for that. That makes me feel good. Um, I, uh, I grew up knowing, uh, knowing a lot about God, um, but I, I grew up not knowing, not really knowing God. Big difference, right? knowing about him and knowing him. But there were some key people in my life growing up that uh, really influenced my walk and really beginning to understand who Jesus actually is in the life that he calls us into. Uh, many of you know the Doobies sitting here right now. Huge role in my life. Uh, pretty much grew up in their house. Jeff and I, best friends, all the way back to, I don't know, kindergarten or before. Um, and, uh, and several others from the, the Pigeon community that really played a role in just shaping my faith and it really helped me understand who Jesus was. Um, one of the places I really began to understand that was actually here at Bay Shore. So as I was thinking back through my story, it was, I think, I think it was the summer between fifth grade and sixth grade. Uh, Jeff and I actually came to the basketball camp that was here. And I remember it was like Wednesday, Thursday night, we're sitting over there in the, the youth center and uh, somebody was presenting the gospel to us. And it was like the commitment night, right? Like raise your hand if you want to accept Christ. And then we're uh, we'll walk you through that process. So I remember sitting there, and he gets to the point of the prayer. Like, hey, if, if you want to follow Jesus, uh, this is the moment. Like, you get to pray this prayer with me, and then if you pray the prayer, raise your hand. So I remember thinking, okay, I, I think I might need to do this, but I'm here with Jeff. And Jeff is like super Christian, okay? So if he, if he raises his hand, then I definitely need to raise my hand. And so I remember sitting there in the, in the prayer, and he's praying, and he's walking us through this prayer, and I'm, and I'm sitting there like this. And I'm kind of doing this the whole time. Like, did he raise his hand? He raised his hand. And the whole prayer, he says, amen. The whole prayer, I never saw him raise his hand. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get up. I'm not going to go anywhere. He didn't raise his. So then he says, okay, if, if you raise your hand, go ahead and stand up. And you're going to walk out the, I guess it would be the, what is that? The north, south, south door over into the back room of the tabernacle, I think. And we're going to explain to you more about what this decision was. And when he says that, Jeff stands up and starts walking. I'm thinking, he didn't raise his hand. There's no way he raised his hand. And I didn't raise my hand. So I just got up and started walking with them. And I walked over to that, uh, to that room and they started to explain to us this, this gospel, like what the, the, what the decision we just made and they were congratulating us. And I remember, I, I, don't, I don't know why I, I was, I, well, it's because of the Holy Spirit, but I walked out of that room and we had counselors lining up both sides of the steps coming down, like this high five tunnel coming out of the thing. And I remember walking down those steps and walking through that, that line of counselors just bawling. Like I was overcome with emotion. And I walked all the way back. I think it was from there over to, uh, it was one of these duplexes over here. 
And I, I just cried myself to sleep that night. And I had no idea why, but it was, a, I was, an, it was an emotional feeling of just something just happened in my life. And I don't know what exactly happened, but something happened. And I remember my mom picked me up that next morning. I told her, hey, I accepted Christ at camp. And she was all excited. And uh, then I went to middle school and kind of put all that on the back burner. Like I, so again, I knew about it. I made this decision, but I wasn't sure what the decision was and what I actually was supposed to do with that. And so I went through middle school, kind of just doing whatever I wanted to do. Uh, then I got to my freshman year of, of high school, and I was on a spring break trip in Myrtle Beach with another family. Uh, many of you know maybe Redford and Liz Most, Justin Moss, Seth Most. We were with them in Myrtle Beach, and we were walking uh, the beach one night. And my brother and Seth were really good friends, and Seth looked at us, and he says, Hey, you guys know everything you need to know about Jesus. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And that was the question. I couldn't get it out of my mind. It messed up my whole spring break. And, uh, and I came home, and I just knew that... Uh, I need to really pursue this relationship with Jesus. And then again, Jeff and I went to a, a play, I think it was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames or something. And there was another invitation moment. And that was the moment where I went forward and I said, okay, this is, I don't even, again, I don't know what all this means, but I'm stepping into this and I'm pursuing Jesus with everything I have. And at that moment, we started a Bible study in a living room and we just started growing in our faith together. And um, it was in high school that I knew God was calling me into ministry. I didn't know what that actually looked like. Um, so, uh, Instead of going to a Christian college, pursuing like a ministry degree, I decided to go to Central Michigan. Why not? So I uh, went there pursuing sports medicine. Got actually, actually, I didn't even get into my first semester and realized that's not what I wanted to do. So I was just kind of floating through trying to figure out what I wanted to do and got through in three and a half years because I tried to find the fastest track out, which was a sports business degree in athletic coaching. So I thought, those are awesome. I'll just do that. Uh, got done with that, graduated Central and moved back to Pigeon to become the youth pastor at Pigeon River Mennonite Church. And I was there for three and a half years. Uh, God did some really cool things. There's actually some of you sitting in here right now that are in that youth group, which is crazy to think about. Um, and uh, from there, then God called me down to Granger, Indiana, to a church called Granger Community Church. I had no idea uh, who was there. The only people I knew down there at that point were the Moss family that I just told you about. They had moved down to Elkhart. I knew them, went to visit, went to this church, really felt a clear call from God, like, this is your next place. This is where you're going to be. And so moved down there, did an internship for about nine months in 2006, seven years of nonprofit work with Seth Most, again, uh, doing some stuff in schools, did that for seven years, and then God opened up a door to come back on staff at the church as one of the pastors in 2014, and I'm now the pastor of discipleship there, leading all of our spiritual growth and development stuff, uh, life groups, uh, teaching on the weekends, and um, it's just amazing to see the story and the journey that God has taken me on. Some introverted kid from a 1,200-person town of Pigeon, Michigan, to be able to uh, preach the good news of Jesus to thousands of people. I, it's amazing to me. And then to be here, to come back here, where one of these, some of these first steps started and to be able to share with you. So that's a little bit of an intro. Uh, just after college, I met uh, my wife, Haley, who's sitting right here. Um, it took me about, I don't know, three chances over a period of about three years to finally help her understand that she really liked me. <laughs> and uh, so then that finally worked. And we have three kids now, uh, Ava, she's nine, Maya is seven, and Caleb is five. And so they are uh, locked up somewhere over there. I'm not sure where, which, which room they're in. Um, but really, we're excited to be here this week and excited to teach with you. Um, the way I like to do this, because we're here for, I guess, an hour and 15 minutes, right? How many of you just sat through an hour and 15 minutes of Bible study? <laughs> Die hard. Okay, so... Uh, I am going to, I love like interactive style of teaching, okay? And so that means like you responding to me sometimes. That also means you talking with one another sometimes. 
So if I'm going to have you do that, I don't know how we're going to like kind of group up or just talk to your neighbors or figure out kind of who's in your group. There's going to be about three different times during just this morning where I'm going to have you turn toward each other and discuss some things for a little bit. Okay. So you can figure out who that is. If it's just family, if you don't know somebody sitting next to you, get to know them. That's great. Um, and if you don't want to talk to them and have them in your group tomorrow, well, now is your chance to realize, oh, I actually don't want to sit by them tomorrow. I'm going to go sit by this guy. That's totally fine. You got one free pass tomorrow. You can go sit by somebody else. All right. So um, uh, here's what I want you to do. We're going to start with that right now. So kind of introduce whoever you're sitting next to. If you know each other, that's great. You can skip the introductions. But I want you to just talk about these three questions. Okay, three questions. First question is this. How many times have you been to family camp at Bayshore? Okay. Uh, number two. What are you actually looking forward to this week? Because we can come to a place, especially if you're familiar with this place and you come every year, it's kind of like, oh, it's family camp week. This is where we're going. But the question is, God is always doing stuff. So what does he actually want to teach you? And what are you expecting coming in to this week? What are you hoping to, to grab from whatever God wants to give you this week? What are you hoping for? Okay. And then question three is, one of your favorite stories or movies. All right. So I'm going to give you, uh, I don't know, let's do like eight minutes. That should be enough time for one, like one minute per person. This is not your whole life story. Those three things. How, how, how many times have you been here? What are you looking forward to? Favorite story or movie? Okay. Ready? Go. All right. You can go ahead and wrap that up. I would love to hear uh, from a few of you, if you're willing to share, what, what's one thing you're looking forward to this week? One thing you came expecting, hoping. What are you looking forward to this week? Being filled. Being filled. Okay. What else? Okay. Somebody said something over here. Away from the busyness. Helping grandchildren meet Christ. That's awesome. Now, speaking of busyness, one of my favorite quotes, Dallas Willard, who is a great theologian, author, pastor, um, he was having a conversation one time with another super successful pastor. And the pastor said, hey, how do I get my people to follow Jesus? Like, I just want them to, want my church to grow and I want them to follow Jesus. And he looked at me and said, um, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. <laughs> hurry is the greatest spiritual enemy of our day, he said. And so being busy is not a bad thing. Jesus was really busy. But he was never hurried, right? Jesus walked everywhere. Um, so ruthlessly eliminating hurry, is, that's good. It's good. Um, Awesome. Favorite stories or movies? Who's, who's got some? Braveheart. Braveheart. Yes. Chariots of Fire. Okay. What else? War Room. Very good movie. One more. The Chosen. We're going to talk about The Chosen, but yes, it counts. Um, so Jesus, in other words, story of Jesus. Yes. Uh, so uh, one of my favorites, any Lord of the Rings fans? Okay. Uh, I was never really a big sci-fi person, but then I watched Lord of the Rings and I'm like, I, I got to watch all these. Uh, so many spiritual undertones and gospel undertones in that. Um, and there's a moment in Lord of the Rings. So you have these two hobbits, right? Frodo, who's supposed to carry the ring to Mordor and destroy evil and uh, for all, uh, for, for once and for all, right? And you have Samwise Gamgee, who's the other uh, hobbit, like the sidekick to Frodo, basically doing whatever he can do to help Frodo succeed. And they're walking through the woods. I think it's at the end of the first book. They're walking through the woods, and Samwise says this to Frodo. He says, hey, Frodo, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. And I love that question because it, it actually assumes two things. One, there's actually something bigger going on around us than just our own little hobbit world. There's something bigger happening. And two, we're actually caught up into it. Like, we actually have a role to play in whatever is happening around us. 
And one of the reasons we love story and remember story and have favorite movies or books or whatever is because story is the language of our hearts. It's how we make sense of things, right? So if somebody says, oh yeah, I, I broke my leg. Well, you don't just stop the conversation there. Usually it's, well, what happened? How did that happen? And you tell the story because it's how we make sense of things. Story is the language of our hearts. Um, and I didn't mention this at the front end, but I basically what I'm going to use the keynote for is scripture. If you want to follow along in your Bible, do that, or a Bible app on your phone, that's great. Um, I may have a handout on, on day four or five. We'll kind of see where God takes this. Um, but I would recommend just getting a phone out, taking notes, or getting your journal out or whatever um, as we walk through this, okay? But story is the language of our hearts. And so uh, it's why we're going to walk through a story in our time together, because it's going to help us make sense of our own lives as we look through the story of Gideon and some of the things that God reveals to him about himself and about, and about Gideon, okay? Let me set the stage. Um, so uh, you have a God eventually uh, approaches this guy named Abraham, okay? And uh, Abraham, he tells Abraham, he says, hey, Abraham, through you and your wife, I'm going to create a nation uh, that will be my people, and they'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he makes this promise, this covenant to Abraham. Um, and so God actually does that, fulfills that, right? This, this nation grows. Eventually, they find themselves in Egypt, and uh, there's a bunch of them, huge, massive people. And so Pharaoh says, hey, let's take all of them, and let's enslave them to us. They'll be our slaves, and they will basically produce all of our economic power. And so they find themselves now enslaved in Egypt, right? Um, then you have Moses who comes in the picture. Moses born in Egypt. His, his story is crazy. He sees his, his own people being oppressed, but he's raised in the palace. And then he's angry with his people being oppressed. So then he kills somebody and then he runs to the mountains. And so for 40 years, he's there for 40 years in the wilderness. And then God finds him and he says, hey, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to free my people, tell Pharaoh to let him go. And uh, we're going to lead them to the promised land, Right. And he actually promised this to Abraham. The promised land was promised back to Abraham. So Moses now is the guy. Uh, and he goes there. He ends up freeing them through the Red Sea. They come into the wilderness. I'm, I'm really flying through the story, okay? And uh, they get into the wilderness. Should have been an 8 to 12-day journey to the promised land. Ends up taking them 40 years. There's a lesson in that for some of us. Uh, but then they get right up to the edge, just about ready to go into the promised land. Uh, Moses is standing up on Mount Nebo. He sees the promised land. But he um, doesn't actually get to lead them into it. He dies, transition of leadership to Joshua. Joshua now takes the, the Israelites, and uh, they go through the Jordan into the promised land um, near Jericho, right? And uh, so then uh, this happens. They begin to take ground, claiming the promised land. Well, then Joshua dies. Then we move into the book of Judges. And at this point, after Joshua's leadership, the people of God begin to forget what God has done for them. And they start to uh, worship false gods, and they fail to obey the commands of God that he has given them, and they fall into this cycle that we begin to see over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And it's this cycle right here. I put it on the screen, and I wrote it up here. This is the cycle we see. Where they sin against God. Actually, first, there was peace. They had peace, right? They sin against God. Begin to worship false gods, disobey whatever God told them to do. Uh, because of their sin, then, they fall into oppression, being oppressed. Eventually, they come to this place of realizing, oh, we need God. That's our problem. And they begin to repent. And then they move to deliverance. God delivers them through their repentance. And through that deliverance, then, they experience peace. 
for a time until they sin again and then they go back into this cycle and we see it over and over and over and it's the same exact cycle that we experience with our lives now. And so when you came uh, to Bay Shore this week, chances are you're somewhere in this cycle in your life right now. You know which stage you are probably in. And we're gonna talk more about this as we go. But this is the the cycle of mankind ever since the fall. So Judges chapter 6, we get into the story of Gideon. And just for those of you that like like little Bible trivia, Gideon is the most narrated judge in Scripture. He actually beats out Samson by four verses. Okay? So we know most about Gideon of all the judges. And... um, what we're going to look at, I don't know if you can see this map very well. Those of you that can see the TV can see the map. Um, but right up towards, kind of halfway between the Sea of Galilee and like Jerusalem, is about where uh, Gideon was, okay? Uh, from the tribe of Manasseh, so you got West Manasseh, East Manasseh. He's kind of right in the middle of those. Uh, Ophrah is the place where he uh, supposedly was, where the, uh, the angel of the Lord appears to him. We'll talk about that in a second. But that's kind of roughly the geographic area. So just west of the Jordan River kind of halfway between the Sea of Galilee and uh, in Jerusalem area, okay? So that's where we are. Uh, and right before we get to Judges 6, it's interesting, Judges 5 ends with these words. It ends with, then the land had peace for 40 years. Okay, that's part of the cycle they were in. Then we pick up Judges chapter 6. And here's what it says. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So we are slipping now back from peace. They just had peace. Now we're going back into sin, right? So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, mortars from Midian, Amalek, sorry, and the people from the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying their crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy, these enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived and uh, should be in droves of, uh, no, on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, for help. So again, Gideon's story really picks up with them slipping back into sin, right? Moving away from God. And that's what sin is. God has the standard we're supposed to live. We don't live up to it. It's sin, right? Start to go our own way away from God. And uh, so then uh, for for the next seven years, they plant their crops. Harvest time would come. These tribes would come in and just ransack the place, take all of their stuff and leave. So they'd have nothing left. So they work hard all year ready for their harvest, and then somebody else comes in and and reaps it all and takes it, steals it from them. Okay, and they're stuck in oppression, oppressed by these other tribes, these other peoples. So after seven years, and this is what's crazy to me, after having to be reduced to starvation, it takes that extreme for them to actually begin to cry out to God. Why do we have to go that far? Like, why do we have to go so far away from God and experience such a depth of darkness and sin to finally maybe cry out to God? 
Wouldn't it be easier if we just like realized, oh, I should have cried out to him earlier. So many times we leave prayer up to like the last resort, right? Like I've tried everything I know how to do. I've talked to people, I've read books, I've done research, I've done everything I know how to do. Nothing's really changing, so I don't know. I guess I'll just start to pray. Toss up a prayer, see what happens, right? And that's kind of where they are. It's what they're doing. And they move into this place of repentance. And again, repentance is, uh, that word just simply just means to turn, right? So I'm moving away from God. And when I turn toward him, that's repentance. So uh, we share this illustration at our church a lot. But when you point your feet in this direction, and you begin to take steps this way, I end up over there, right? If I point my feet in this direction and I take steps this way, I end up over there. What you cannot do is point your feet in this direction, take steps this way, and end up over there. You can't do it. It takes some type of turning, some type of repentance. And uh, one of the lies that the enemy loves for us to believe, and some of you may be in this place, is we may feel like we've taken step after step after step after step away from God, and we're so far away from God that like, I'm so exhausted. I I can't even imagine trying to get back to God at this point. I'm so far gone. How could I possibly get back there? There's no way. But scripture doesn't talk about us having to pursue God. Scripture talks about God always pursuing us, right? Always pursuing us. So if we're taking a thousand steps away from him and he's always pursuing us, how many steps does it take to get back to him? One right there. And he's been waiting for us. He doesn't say, hey, clean yourself up, get get all nice and neat and then come back to me. No, let me meet you right here in the darkest place. And I'm going to link up with you and walk you out from here. And that's what he promises to do, if we're willing to turn. And they finally take this turn and they begin to cry out to God. And I think it's safe to say that the cry for God that they had sounds very similar to many times what we sound like when we cry out to God. It's this cry of, hey, God, where are you? Like, if you're actually here, if you're with me, now would be a good time to show up but I don't know where you're at. You don't seem to be anywhere near. I don't know where you've run off to. I don't know why you've abandoned us. It'd be really helpful if you could just be with us. Now, there's a a story uh, that goes like this. There was an uh, old man and an old woman, and they were driving in their car one day, and they pull up to a four-way stop. And this was back in the day when you had, like, the, the full bench seat in the front, right, where you could, like, sit right next to the person driving. You could slide along the whole thing. So the she's, you know, they're sitting there in the car and they look across the four-way stop and there's this younger couple in a car and the girl's like right on top of, like right next to the guy. And they're like all flirty and having fun and laughing and giggling and kind of kissing on each other. And the, the wife kind of looks over at the husband and says, oh, look at, look at them. Like, you know, hey honey, what, what, like that used to be us. What, what happened? And he's sitting there at the wheel and he looks over at her and he says, it wasn't me who moved. So many times we think, oh, God must have ran away from us. Like God God is the one that left. I've I've been here the whole time wanting to do what God wants me to do, and he's the one that ran away from me. No, no, no. It's this cycle that removes us out of his presence or out of whatever he wants to do. He He actually can't do what he wants to do in our lives when we're in a place like this. So their own choices, these, these, uh, the Israelite people, their own choices have created this feeling of distance from God, right? Okay, let's keep reading. Uh, verse seven. So when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. 
I drove out your enemies, gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord, your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened to me. In other words, the problem you find yourself in isn't due to a lack of my presence. See, the problem you find yourself in is because of a loss of my position in your life. It's not due to a lack of my presence. It's the loss of my position in your life. That's why you feel distant. You've chosen to put other things before me. You've actually chosen to make things more of a priority in your life, to worship different guts, to make them priority. Devoting your lives to things that can't save you, that can't fulfill you, that can't sustain you, And basically what you've done is you've chosen to be in control of your own life. That's what you've chosen. And God is saying, my desire has always been to protect you, to bring you joy, to bring you purpose, to bring you peace, to get you to this place right here. It's always been my desire. So the problem isn't my lack of presence, but the loss of position in your life. And this plays out the same way in our lives, right? So... Uh, some of us may have been born into a family of faith. How many of you were born into just like a Christian family? Your parents following Christ, awesome. Uh, most of you. How many, how many were not born into a family like that? Okay. And um, either way, um, whether it was curiosity, uh, you began to attend church or read or just begin to learn more about who Jesus was, recognize your need for Jesus, invite him into your life in some way. And uh, I brought a prop and I left it in my building over here, so I'm not going to go grab it right now. But basically, it's this little wooden Jesus figure, okay? And I like to call him back pocket Jesus, because he's really small, and I can just put him in my back pocket, and I can take him with me wherever I want to go. And many times, this is the relationship that we enter into with Jesus, where uh, he becomes back pocket Jesus. And so we go on living our life, and then hard times come, and I can just pull him out. And then I can say, hey, look at this. That's, that's, can I use that? Can you, can you guys pass that up? That's, that's way better than the one I was going to bring. That's amazing that you even have this. I love that. Can it, he can like bend and stuff. He can move his arms and legs. Yes, that's great. So here's back pocket Jesus, okay? And uh, we're going to put one hand up. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. Okay, so I, I have back pocket Jesus. Things go bad, I pull him out and say, Jesus, can you help me? Can you be with me? Please be with me. And then things might kind of start to smooth over a little bit. Oh, thank you so much. Hey, I got it from here. We're good. And we put him back. And we just keep going. And then an issue comes up with our finances. And we don't know what to do. And so we cry out, God, can you help me? Can you come and save me and help me and show me what to do? I don't know what to do. And so we pull out the back pocket Jesus and ask him to kind of take over for a little bit. And things start to smooth over. And we start to experience a little more peace. And we say, hey, thanks. We put him back. And we go on for a few more years. And the first, mar- first year of marriage is awesome. And the second year is, whew. Say, Jesus, I need some help. Can you come out now? Can you come out and help me? And so we pull him out and, and, and he can start to guide and lead and then everything's good and we kind of put him back. And this is, this for many of us is the only kind of relationship with God that we've really ever known. He's here to help me. He's in my pocket. I got him if I need him. And I'm going to take him with me wherever I go. And that's kind of the mentality that we have, right? Can I hold on to him for a little bit? Okay. And so the prayer typically is, God, be with me. Wherever I go, be with me. I'm going to bring you along. And this is the prayer that they're praying. But I think there's something that God wants to teach us a little more about when it comes to the with me prayer. 
through the life of Gideon. Okay, let's keep reading. So we're at verse 11. All right. So uh, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press, not normal, to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Like that's the introduction to the conversation. He just shows up. So just put yourself in Gideon's shoes for a second. First of all, you're, you're hiding in a cave because you're fearful of the enemy that's going to come. You're not out threshing wheat up on top of the hill where the wind can blow the chaff away and you keep the wheat. You're down in this wine press doing something you're not supposed to be doing in the location that you would never normally do this. Why? Because of fear. And so here you are, and then all of a sudden this angel of the Lord shows up and says, hey, I'm with you, mighty warrior. Like, what is that? Where does that come from? So I want to pause here for a second, and I want you to turn together again, and I want you to discuss these two questions. What do you observe in these two verses right here? What's your observation? What are you learning? What are you picking up? What's, what's going on? And what's so significant about the statement made by the angel of the Lord? Okay, those two questions. What do you observe that's going on here? And what's so significant about the angel's statement? Okay, take, uh, I don't know, eight to 10 minutes in your, whoever you're talking with, turn together, let's talk about those two things, and then we'll pick it back up. All right, take one more minute. All right, you ready? Ready to move on? What are some observations you're making about this scene right here that we have? What, you, what were some of the things you talked about? Okay. Okay, good, good. What else? Mm. Good, 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 yeah. Rick? Yeah. Yeah. Some of that circumstance makes sense from the perspective that he's living at, right? Totally. What else? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. One more. Two more. Yes. Huge. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And God didn't come in, the angel of the Lord, which uh, Jay and I were talking about this. Uh, many, many believe it was Jesus that showed up right there. Jesus didn't just come here. It was, wasn't just born in Bethlehem, and that's when he showed up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Through him, all, all things were created. That's Jesus that, that, that John is talking about there. And so Jesus has always been, and so he's showing up throughout the Old Testament all the time. And many, many think that was Jesus. And he didn't come with this like, Gideon, what's wrong with you? There wasn't this spirit of condemnation or shame. It was this immediate breath of life 
into Gideon. Here's what's so significant about uh, the line that comes uh, from the angel in this, in this scene. Gideon currently has two lies that are controlling his life. The first lie is God is distant or, or he's just left me altogether. That's the first lie that he's believing. The second lie he's believing is that he himself is hopeless or weak, can't stand up against what's going on, and there's nothing he can do about the situation. So first lie is God's distant, he's left me. Second lie is I can't do anything about this, I'm weak, I'm hopeless. And those two lies are driving his life. It's what's, it's what's causing him to make decisions, it's what's shaping his perspective, right? And I'm guessing, because the enemy is really good at this, none of us are immune from this, though over time we can become uh, less susceptible to it. I'm guessing there's some lies that maybe we've come in here with. Lies about what we think about God, what we think about ourselves, maybe what we think about other people that we know, and that we've believed them and those have actually positioned us in a place or have put us in a mindset that God never intended for us to experience. And they're actually driving our life. As we go through the next several days, we're gonna spend some time in prayer over some of those lies. Because it's one of the greatest tactics of the enemy is to get us to agree with something that isn't true. So we're gonna keep reading. Okay, let's go. So he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 13, here's Gideon's response. Uh, pardon me, Lord? Like you, what'd you say? If the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now, here's what's, here's what's true. The Lord has abandoned us and he's given us into the hand of Midian. It's so interesting that when we find ourselves in a tough place, how quickly we can be to blame God. <laughs> like it's his fault. He didn't show up. He wasn't with us. He didn't do his part. If he did, then, you know, why did it happen? Where's he at? Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in strength, go in the strength you have. Save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I love this response. Here's why. Because I can imagine the angel of the Lord sitting there, just listening to Gideon kind of go off on this little pity party that he's having, right? God's not with us. It's his fault. He put us in the hand of Midian. All this is happening. If he was great, then what? why is all this happening? And he's going on and on and on and on. And I, and I love the, the approach of Jesus here saying, hey, uh, I'm just going to listen. And I'm actually fine with you venting whatever you want to vent. And I'll actually sit here and wait as long as I have to wait until you get everything out you need to get out. Totally fine with it. And then he gets to this place where he's probably thinking, okay, getting you done? Are you, like, are you do if you're not done yet, keep going. Okay, you're done now? Okay, good, you're done now. So now that you're done, go in the strength you have and rescue your people, save your people. I'm sending you. Like, you wanna be delivered, right? I mean, that's what I'm hearing. So go ahead, go do it. I'm sending you. 
And a lot of times when we want something, we actually don't want to be the one to have to do it. We just want, we just want to reap the benefits of whatever is supposed to happen, right? But he's saying, okay, I've listened to you. Now you're done. Now you go. You go. I'm sending you. Deliver. It's up to you. You have the strength to do this. And God says this because he understands something about his own self, the power of, of God. And he understands something about Gideon that Gideon doesn't know yet, right? What you said. He's foreshadowing, he's speaking into Gideon's life about something he has in him that Gideon does not even believe he has. Verse 15. Again, Gideon responds, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? How can I do it? My clan, okay, now listen, this is, he's speaking out of the lie he believes, but he believes it's true, okay? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. So I don't know what strength you're talking about. I think you're confused with somebody else because we have the weakest clan and I'm actually the weakest part of the clan. Like I'm the weakest link of the weakest link. That's who I am. And the Lord answered, I'll be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. At this point, Gideon has an awareness issue. See, he's doing great with his circumstantial awareness. Oh, he's very aware of what's happening around him circumstantially. So much so that he's buried in it and it's all he can see. And he's consumed by it and it's, again, it's driving his life. What he's not aware of and what he's lost is his spiritual awareness. He's lost it. He's lost sight of who God is and what God's actually capable of. And what he might be capable of in partnership with the power of God. He's lost sight of that. And awareness is critical. I'm going to attempt to show a video. You guys back here, I'm really sorry. Because you, you don't have a chance. Um, but those of you who are right here, and I'll kind of explain what's happening in the video. Let's just see if it works, first of all. And if it does, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. So it's an awareness test. So you got a white. How many passes in the, does the team in white make? Can you guys see this at all? Okay, so you're watching to see how many passes the white team makes. Can't even see the ball. Can any of you see the ball? I'm just gonna let it go. Person in the front row, good. Did anybody see the, the moonwalking bear go through there in the, during that? A couple of you did? Okay, watch again. There it is, right in the middle right now. He's moonwalking out, and he's gone. You see him that time? Um, it's easy to miss something you're not looking for. I don't know why, but uh, it took me three times to watch that before I found the bear. <laughs> but awareness is critical, right? Being aware. So I want to end with um, taking you through something that totally transformed my way of understanding some things. And um, we're going to walk through because what, what, what Gideon needs right now is a change. He needs a change. He needs a spiritual change. He needs a perspective change. He just needs a change. And sometimes we get, our, get in a place in our lives where it's like, man, I just, something needs to change, right? Something needs to, something needs to change. And so we, we attempt to kind of create the change that we need in our own lives. 
that whenever we need change, or whenever we're wanting change or desiring change, we go through a process typically. And this is called the five levels of change, okay? You may want to write this down if you're taking notes and kind of, because we might refer back to this too later this week. The five levels of change. This is typically what we do as humans, okay? The first level of change that we typically try to change in our, in our lives or we want to experience change is environment. Environment, right? So if I want change, I just need to change up my environment. Like I need to go get a new job or move to a new house or a new neighborhood or a new state. Um, maybe buy some new clothes, get a new car, like need some type of change to change something up, right? You can even go to as extreme, and some people do, as I, I, like, I need a new spouse. I just need, I need something new. Not working, need something new. Environmental change, right? But you and I both know, you can change up your environment and getting a new car is exciting, but about six months in, you're like, okay, I'll enjoy this for a little while longer, but I'm probably gonna want something new eventually, again, right? And the newness eventually wears off. So it's not lasting change that we're looking for. So then we go to the next layer and we say, oh, okay. I'll just change, I need to change my behavior. And if I change my behavior, that will actually influence my environment, right? And so as we draw these, the the circle above has uh, influence over the circle below. Okay? So if I change my behavior, I'll change my environment. So if I walk in and I'm not like super mean to my kids and I'm actually nice to them, then maybe we'll have more peace in our home. Probably. Behavior change is is good. But again, you're going to be super nice to your kids until you're not. At some point, you know, you can coach yourself up, be good today, be good today, be good today, and then you're not good today. (laughs) Right? At some point, the behavior doesn't last and so then we say, okay, well, that's, that's not really working either. So I'm going to go to this next layer. And the next layer is capabilities. I need to get better at doing this thing. I need to, I need to work harder at doing this thing. Or I need to go back to school and learn a new thing or a new hobby or a new skill. I need to be more capable because if I'm more capable, that will actually influence my behavior, which will ultimately change my environment and bring me the change that I'm looking for, right? And this right here is typically where we spend all of our time and energy trying to bring change to our life. And here's what we, uh, here's, here's the lie that we buy into. We think that change equals progress. <coughs> How many of you believe change actually equals progress? Sometimes, okay? Let me share this illustration. There was a period in our life, uh, my wife and I, uh, probably eight years or so, we were changing all the time, changing things all the time, change after change after change after change after change, and we ex- actually experienced no progress. You know what we were changing? These. Over and over and over and over and over, right? Dirty, clean, dirty, clean, dirty, clean, changing, no progress. Because change actually does not equal progress. You can change these things all the time. Spin your wheels, changing them all the time, which the enemy loves us to do. Oh, hey, you know, you know what will make your life better? Go buy this thing. It'll be, it'll be great. It'll change everything. No, it won't. Because change doesn't actually equal progress. If I want to get somewhere or make progress, change doesn't equal progress. But then there was this moment that really did change everything. It was magical. It's called potty training. And as soon as our kids got that, there was this one change 
that had dominion over all the other changes and actually led to progress. See, these three layers right here, call these the physical layers. Because we can actually manipulate those, right? Like I can take control of those, I can manipulate them, I can bring change to my life through doing these things. The problem is there's two more layers. And these next two layers are only things that can be changed by the one who made us, because only he has the power to do this. The next layer to bring change is belief. See, what I believe to be true at the end of the day has incredible influence over my capabilities or somebody else's, what I think about their capabilities, my capabilities, which influences behavior, which influences environment, right? Gideon believed God was not with him. Believed that he was hopeless. He couldn't do anything about this. So what's he capable of? Not much. What's his behavior? Hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat. What's his environment? He's living in fear, right? Understandably. But that's his belief. And the layer above all of this that the angel of the Lord speaks right into in this statement is identity. Identity is king over all of this. Identity has dominion over all of this. Why? Because like story is the language of our heart, identity is the frequency of our heart. It's the radio station that we, uh, for those of you that know what radio station is, that, that, uh, that we tune into to begin to make sense of each other and value and worth of things. It's, through, it's all through identity. So whenever we hear something, we either translate it as something that's true through our identity lens or false through our identity lens. Something that's good or bad through our identity lens. That's why often when you meet somebody for the first time, you get to know their name and you often ask, what do you do? Because based on what they do, it helps us kind of gauge identity. Oh, that's who, oh they're a doctor? Oh, that's who they are. <laughs> Oh, they do this? Oh, that's who they are. It gives you some sense of identity because it's the frequency of our heart. It's what we're tuned into, right? And identity has dominion over all of this. Now, um, this is huge when it comes to who you actually think you are. See, if you believe that you're no good, because somebody told you that? If you believe you're ugly, if you believe you're not smart, if you believe you're less than, not quite good enough, if that's your identity and you actually begin to believe it, well, then what are you capable of? What's your behavior going to be? And what's your environment going to be? I experienced this when I was a, a freshman in high school. So um, up until my freshman year, all the way through elementary, middle school, whenever I'd play sports, I, I was on the starting, starting team. I, I started which is a huge accomplishment through middle school. Way to go. So I get to my high school, uh, I think it was actually, yeah, it was my freshman year. And so I'm thinking, I'm gonna be the starting point guard on the basketball team, right? We get through practice, go to the first game, I don't start. I'm thinking, okay, coach is just trying some things out. Everything will be fine. Second game, I don't start. Third game, I, I get playing time every time. But then I got, I started to start to mess with my mind. I started to mess with, maybe I'm actually not that good. Maybe I'm not who I thought I was. I remember we got to a game, it was actually at USA. And uh, we had 33 boys on our team. We didn't cut. Crazy. That game, I remember it was the only game uh, of the whole season that every single person on our team got on the court and got some playing time. Probably because we blew USA out. I'm sure that's why it was. 
Um, it's the only, it was the only time everybody got playing time except me. I was literally the only person on the team that didn't actually step on the court. And so what that did to my identity is I actually began to believe I'm not that good. Yeah, I guess I'm not that good. Oh, and I, I'm actually, I actually believe it now. What am I capable of? Apparently not much. So what's my behavior? I'm not really going to try the rest of the season. Like, why would I try? So what's my environment? The bench, <laughs> right? <laughs> the rest of the season. Because identity influenced all of that. What I thought about myself, I agreed with it, believed it, and it impacted everything. This is huge when it comes to understanding your own life and... Uh, you start to apply this to other people in your life, your spouse. Who do you think they are? What do you believe about that? You believe it? What does it mean about what they're capable of then? Apply this to God himself. If you think God is distant, I grew up thinking God is distant somewhere impersonal, kind of this nasty Santa Claus at the switchboard of pain waiting to strike me down when I do something bad, right? That was my understanding of God. Well, if that's who he is, and I believe that, what's he capable of? Oh, he can mess me up. So what's my behavior? I'm going to walk on eggshells my whole life because I don't want to get him mad, right? I want to do more good than bad because I thought that was my ticket to heaven. So that's what I'm going to try to do. And what's my environment? It's, it's fearful. I don't want to make him mad. But scripture says that God is a good father, that he's for us, that he is love. If that's who he is, and I believe that about him, what's he capable of? And what's my behavior? What's his behavior toward me? He wants to have conversation with me. He wants to be in relationship with me. What's my environment? Peace. Assurance, confidence, right? Huge difference based on identity. The enemy, who do you think the enemy is? What do you believe is true about him? What's he capable of? See, if you think he's some equal and opposite to God, well, then there's reason to be, there's reason to be afraid. But newsflash, he's not equal and opposite, right? Kicked out of heaven with a third of the angels, which means, okay, God is still in charge with two thirds. Okay, not a fair battle at all. He can't be in all the same places at all the same time, right? He's not uh, omnipresent and omnipotent. It's not who he is. Understanding who he is, getting the right belief about that, Many times we confuse the enemy with uh, our boss, our coworker, our spouse. They're not the enemy. There's that we have one enemy. So this is this is so important to understand. Um, we have five minutes. We're gonna wrap this up in five minutes. Um, and this this whole identity thing. If you if you uh, we're gonna talk more about this as we go. But if if you don't think identity is important. Think about whenever you get in some type of discussion or, or uh, let's call it an argument, with a, a close friend or a spouse. Think about this. You can be arguing about something. So let's say, you know, I, um, you know, Haley says, hey, you know, I really wish that you would just throw the clothes in the hamper instead of next to it. I mean, it's right there. Like, pick them up, put them in. Very simple. Why don't you ever do that? And we get into this discussion about this, right? Oh, I was in a hurry. I just threw it over there. I mean, it's close. It's over there. I'll do it. I'll do it eventually. It's not in some other room, right? It's fine. So it's fine. But then it, it begins to escalate when you start to bring in identity. As soon as she makes the statement, you're so lazy. Wait, hold on. What? You are identity lazy. You start to attack somebody's identity. The heat goes up in the conversation, doesn't it? 
Because identity has dominion over all these things. You're starting to attack who God has actually made me to be, right? And so we've got to be clear on who God has made us to be. If we're actually going to live into the purpose that God has created us to live into and do what he's asking us to do, one, it's beyond our own power, and two, it requires truth about identity of ourselves and him. And we're going to dive further into that as we go. The last thing I want to put up here, because I want us to have this going into tomorrow, is um, two, two views when it comes to identity. The world, we, we're, we're in a culture that teaches this. Okay, ready? It teaches this. If this is what, and this is who, culture says what determines the who. What you have, what you've accomplished, kind of house you live in, what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you wear, what you have actually determines who you are. The position you have, right? The kind of money you make, what you have determines who you are. That's what the culture teaches us. And here's what the enemy loves about this, that if that's true, and if this is what we're believing, then guess what happens when something messes up down here? If we fail at something, guess what we are? You're a failure. That's what you are. If you lose at something, guess what you are? You're a loser. And we actually begin to believe that based on these things down here, based on these physical layers. But God says, hold on a second. Let me, under, let me help you understand how I actually designed you to live. It's not what determining who. He said, I've, I've created you that the who will determine the what. I'm the only one, God says, that has the right to give you identity because I made you. Nobody else has the right to give you identity. And we're going to look at some of those identity statements and who God says we are in Scripture tomorrow. But once we begin to understand these, who God says we are determines then what we should do with our lives. So when something messes up down here in environment or behavior or capabilities, guess what? It actually doesn't change who I am. It causes me to go back and remember who God says I am to get back on track with what I'm doing. See the difference? Huge difference. And so we'll dive into more of this tomorrow, um, 1142. I'm going to pray, and then we will, uh, I guess, go get kids, probably, if you have kids, and go eat food. Okay, awesome. God, thank you so much for our time this morning. You are such a good God, and I'm so grateful that you, <laughs> you remind us again and again and again and again who we are. And that what you have created us for actually has incredible significance. Scripture says that when you knit us together in our mother's womb, you then wrote down every single one of our days before one of them came to be. That's incredible to me. That you've created us with that type of intentionality and that type of purpose. When you think about how personal of a God you are, when I just think about that with my own life and times that by seven billion you're such a personal God, an intentional God, one who's always wanting to remind us of truth, never hiding yourself from us. And so God, I pray that as we go through this week, our hearts and minds will be open to whatever it is you want to teach us about ourselves and our own identity, any lies that we've been agreeing with um, in our life, that you would reveal those this week, and that we could bring victory over those with your truth, that we would leave this week differently than when we came in. 
different intentionality, different perspective, different hope, different life. So put that in your hands, God, and continue to lead us. We trust you. Holy Spirit, guide us, please. Be with us this afternoon. Help us to enjoy this day, the fellowship of each other. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, have a great rest of the day, everybody.